Hollywood films often feature classroom scenes that show a highly glamorized view of what teaching looks like. And Jessamine Newhouse is someone who really notices these scenes. Because she is both a professor who teaches courses on pop culture and a researcher who studies what it takes to be a good teacher. One of her roles is running the Center of Teaching Excellence at the State University of New York at Plattsburgh. And there's one scene in particular that this professor says typifies these Hollywood classroom scenes. It's from a 2015 horror film called Pay the Ghost, which stars Nicolas Cage. But he's a professor in the film, and he gives a lecture. It's not even a large lecture hall. It's a fairly small room, and he's giving a lecture that's so amazing. I mean, he's freaking Nick Cage, so of course. My father, my father, he seizes me fast. For sorely the Earl King has hurt me at last. The father now gallops with terror half wild. He grasps in his arms the poor shuddering child. And the students applaud, like at the end. And I was just like, oh, come on. Applause should not be the ideal to which we're striving. Like that is not helpful for students or instructors to be thinking, well, if it's a good lecture, I'm going to be moved to applause. (laughs) So why does she think these pop culture moments are so harmful to how we all view teaching? And what would a more helpful view of teaching look like? Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I am Jeff Young. I am an editor and reporter here at Ed Surge. On this week's episode, we are diving into popular stereotypes about teachers and of who gets to teach. That some experts, and even some recent TV shows about teaching, are now trying to work against. Our guest is Professor Jessamine Newhouse, who has produced two books that are related to this point. The first is called Geeky Pedagogy. Love that title. A guide for intellectuals, introverts, and nerds who want to be effective teachers. She sees herself as part of this group of geeky, nerdy teachers. And I started by asking what she means by those terms. They come with baggage, but the terms geek and nerd are much more commonly circulated now than they were in in my youth as in the 1970s and previously. And I think it boils down to just really being passionately in love with certain subjects or or strange specific things like Danny Glover says <laughs> that. Um, the passionate love for our topics drives us as as scholars and seeing ourselves in this way I think starts it does two things first helps us understand the way we we might be approaching a topic differently than a novice learner or somebody taking our general education class who does not come in even like buying into the relevance or importance of the topic, let alone loving every nuance and detail. And I guess the second thing that I don't talk about really specifically in the book, but definitely is a presumption or assumption that I'm making, is that it helps us take ourselves just a a tiny bit less seriously. Um, And I do note, you know, right up front and my, my most recent 
um, anthology addresses this as well, that of course your teaching context is important and ident embodied identity really, really matters. And so when I say take ourselves less seriously, I, I don't want to um, suggest that everybody's in the same boat here. There's, you know, for, for uh, faculty of color, women faculty of color, for anybody who doesn't quote unquote look like a professor, there's different um, gendered and racialized expectations and assumptions and stereotypes about academic expertise. But with that caveat, in general, for us teaching college classes and trying to connect with students and build rapport with students and trying to just in general talk less and listen more, it can be helpful to take our, 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 our scholarly expertise you know, as important, but slightly less seriously, you know, a little bit of a sense of humor, I guess, approaching our work. Which is also helpful when we mess up and make mistakes, which we will. <laughs> Just last year, she edited another book about teaching. This one has chapters written by a diverse group of authors, looking even more closely at the various biases students and others have toward different types of teachers, and how to work against such stereotypes. It's called Picture a Professor, Interrupting Biases About Faculty and Increasing Student Learning. All the authors are addressing the fact that students arrive to our classes with gendered and racialized assumptions and expectations about academic authority and expertise. So in the words you know, of that groundbreaking anthology in the follow-up second, uh, second volume, many faculty who don't quote-unquote look like a professor, women faculty of color, for example, are presumed incompetent. That's the, that's the name of the anthology. And they do not arrive to the classroom, we do not arrive to the classroom with the same presumed academic authority and expertise as um, cisgendered, able-bodied white men teaching college classes. The work that we have to do to facilitate student learning is different and in some cases harder than the stereotypical professor figure. So for example, being perceived as helpful. Let's just take that word helpful. There are a lot of gendered expectations about what it means to be helpful. What, and that is important to teaching. Students have to see you as wanting to help them. But what I have to do to show students that I want to help them, the lift is higher and harder than my you know, colleague down the hall who um, looks exactly like, like, uh, like students assume a history professor should look. <laughs> now, give me an example of what a performance of that means. Like, what does it mean to be, uh, or the work that you're describing? Well, one thing is... Um, the assumption that you know what you're talking about, that you're that you are the expert in the field. Um, faculty who don't conform to that like really limited stereotype around embodied identity face a lot more student questions and skepticism. Does this person really know how to do, especially in STEM, you know, how to do science, how to do math? Um, they're, they're going to be um, the, 
the work that the instructor has to do to demonstrate their expertise is more, is more. For the example I was talking about earlier about being helpful, um, because there's a gendered expectation around being helpful, people who are you know, female <laughs> are expected to be more helpful, more understanding, kinder. The expectations are higher. So what I have to do like to show that I'm available to help a student, I have to more concertedly, more frequently, more deliberately reach out to show that I, I can be helpful, that I want you to succeed um, because the standards are higher. It's, yeah. it's, it's an assumption that students are bringing in from the outside world. You know, those don't stop just because we've entered the, the classroom. Um, the same expectations, ideals, assumptions that exist outside the classroom are coming in with us. What is something that can be done to interrupt these biases? The book is full of great strategies, concrete strategies. Um, but I think one theme that runs through it is the um, work to build build rapport with students, uh, increase student learning with t- tried and true techniques like active learning um, and anti-racist uh, pedagogical practices, inclusive teaching practices, uh, finding support, you know, reaching out to and building community with other teacher scholars. Um, so doing a lot of the stuff that, you know, I talk about in Geeky Pedagogy, you know, really like, I guess, step one, like realizing this isn't you and you alone that a lot uh, several of the people several of the contributors talk about how transformative it was to to just talk with other teacher scholars who were facing the same issues and like oh it's not just me like for it, you know when i started teaching early in my career i was fairly young and you know that whole semester that i was in my late 20s and really hugely pregnant, if somebody had said to me, you know what, students might be bringing certain expectations or assumptions about you based on the fact that you're a pregnant, heavily pregnant woman, (laughs) it would have been really helpful. Like not every, it doesn't explain everything, but it certainly would have helped me realize some of the dynamics that were, were happening in those, in those classes. And um, in Gigi Pedagogy, I point out it was a real irony that I spent a huge part of my graduate school career studying how identity is constructed, but not once did someone say, oh, and by the way, that's also going to impact teaching and learning when you get to the classroom. <laughs> Because that's one in the first chapter in Geeky Pedagogy is about awareness, what we what we need to accept as reality. And I look at four things, who we are, who our students are, that learning is hard, and first and foremost, that identity is important. Embodied identity matters. Well, yeah, it, it does strike me there's a there's a, a through line between these two works. Like your the identity, one identity is a geeky introverted, introverted teacher that a lot of people can relate to. 
But obviously, if identity matters, there's so many identities. As I guess if you could you say a little bit more about why it matters? I think, I'm, I'm thinking now, I haven't been asked or talked too much about the sort of connections between the books, so I'm just thinking out loud. But the way you phrased the question made me, made me think that the through line is I want people to feel supported in their teaching and that the, the, there's this, this cultural stereotype of the super teacher out there. It's really deeply embedded in, our, in all of our heads. It, it shows up all the time in popular culture, almost always the only time you see someone teaching in the movies or on TV at any level, college, high school, at any level. Um, maybe with the exception of Abbott Elementary, now that I'm thinking about it, maybe, maybe that's one reason it's so popular, that there's, that there's no um, perfect super teacher. But with that, with that notable new exception, the teachers we see on our screens are these magnetic, super dynamic performers who are lecturing and students sit there and they magically learn just by being in this super teacher presence. That ideal is so impossible to achieve and really like undermines how learning works, that it's difficult, it's always difficult, and you can't just pour the knowledge into students' head. And it undermines our self-efficacy when we are not super performative or extroverted or outgoing, which is, again, a lot of people in academia. (laughs) People who have those skills may not be drawn to sitting for long hours by themselves, like quietly pondering. That's not usually the attraction. Um, So I guess the, the connection there and why identity is important is because it can it can really get in the way of our sense of teaching self-efficacy, that, that this is something I can do, that I can help students learn, um, whether it's because we're just our personalities as, as introverts, we don't look like that super teacher, um, or it's because we're navigating these intersectional biases and assumptions that students bring and that, uh, you know, people in academia all share. Um so I want people who read my words about teaching to know, hey, I can do this. <laughs> Someone gets it. And that there's other people out there um, to support that, that ongoing learning that we have to do to keep learning and relearning how to help our students effectively learn. Okay, I don't, I, this is one where I don't know if, um, if, if you're, if you've, obsessed about this as I am. But since you study pop culture, I I have been long wanting to do, you know, there are so many of these like what I kind of jokingly call chalkboard scenes in pop in Hollywood movies where something very complicated is explained um, by somebody like you describe, like by this masterful person and everyone is just hanging on every word. It only usually there's a whiteboard somehow at, magically in in the planning room. And and it it is incredibly important to the you know, exposition of the movie, but it's somehow magic and hap- happens quickly. 
I, I, I don't know if there's like, um, if you've been watching these, has there been any, is, is it getting any better besides Abbott Elementary or like, what, what is your take on these like moments in Hollywood films about, you know, the teaching that goes on? I don't see a lot of change. Uh, I, it, there's been a little bit of diversifying of the, of the super teachers. So he's not, not always white, not always straight, not always a man, but the actual teaching and learning part, that stereotype is still there. If if it's worth the the focus of a of a movie or of a TV show, it's that depiction of learning as very top down and and pretty and passive. That students can just sit there and watch and listen. And of course, in the depictions, they're all like magically, you know, attentively watching and taking notes and asking questions. <laughs> Um, yeah, we just did a series on, on student disengagement. I'm hearing that's not, yeah, that's not what's happening right now in classrooms. I'm hearing, um, the attentiveness level Yeah, and maybe it never was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a good point that I never thought about actually with the whole question of student engagement. That ideal might be that impossible ideal might be shaping our understanding of it like oh if if not consciously but if for students and for us teaching this idea that well if if everyone isn't mesmerized every second and having life-changing breakthroughs every minute in every class then they must not be engaged i i i think you're right i think there's there's a real connection there that 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 myth of how teaching and learning is supposed to look like might really be interfering and that, you know, without like saying, oh, well, nothing we can do about it. Maybe saying, uh, what's the most, what's a realistic goal for all of us being engaged in learning today in this classroom? It may, it's not going to look like necessarily it looks like on TV. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's, I helped some students set up a, a a time to study together. You know, that could be very important for them this week, you know, with the exam coming up. Maybe that's, you know, if we can get that, that really impossible, like you said, the chalkboard moments out of our head. <laughs> no, it's interesting. And, and, you know, the other thing I think of is like, you mentioned like, oh, if it's a movie devoted to teaching, but I even mean, I even mean the movies that have nothing to do with teaching, like Indiana Jones, Indiana Jones is a professor. <laughs> Get out of my head. Captain, my captain, please. Yes, I know it's true. Like they're just, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a really tough and it's, it's also very gendered and, and racialized as well that, that stereotype, um, it really, I think it does really interfere with all our abilities to, to, to recognize effective teaching and learning, you know, for students too. Like, well, I, I wasn't entertained every second. I guess she's not a good teacher. Um, oh, my students like really struggled to stay attentive in class. I guess I'm not a good teacher. Like that, 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 that really impossible ideal gets in the way. Yeah, and it seems like obviously your focus is is college, but it seems like this would affect K twelve as well, especially at the high school level or any. Oh, absolutely, level. absolutely. That the only 
that the only good teaching is phenomenal, life-changing, uh, like incredible, excellent teaching. In fact, that's one reason I talk about geeky pedagogy and I've continued emphasizing that I, I use the term effective teaching and I do that really deliberately. I try to avoid even good teaching, excellent teaching, uh, and definitely avoid stuff like super teachers or um, like the very best because I think those words can trigger that stereotype and that impossible ideal. You know, when I say good teaching, I think there's a, there's at least a part in all our heads that goes to that those kind of representations that you're talking about. When I say effective teaching, and we can have a long discussion about what that means, but you know, helping students learn how to do something better. And I know, like working with faculty, I've seen, and talking with book groups, I've seen the sort of like relief that comes to somebody's face when I say, your job is to help students learn how to do something or how to do something better. That's effective teaching. That is... That, that may not look like the, that massive light bulb moment or that super breakthrough, but it's what we can, it's what we're doing. It's what we can do. And you're doing it right now, you know? <laughs> so. And introverts might be as, yeah, as good or better at it than right. anybody. That's anybody. Right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. 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 What, you know, I, it makes me think of all the teaching awards that I get you know, kind of notes about like this teacher of the year. And, and obviously they're always very impressive people and I don't want to take anything away from teachers of the year, but are they, are they playing into that as well? Some of these, like broadly speaking, this a sense of what gets recognized. Yeah, I agree. And I, I totally agree that I would never want to denigrate them or um, dismiss their, like how great they feel and how, valid they are, you know, recognizing people's really highly effective teaching and, and work. Um, but I think it's, I mean, all at all levels, K through college, because we live in a society that does not give enough credit and support to teaching, I mean, to put it mildly, um, and in fact, you know, every year is harder and harder to do our jobs and we're, we're not compensated adequately, even just financially. I think in, in this, in our own context, that I, that focus on just the, the one or the, the handful of exceptional people really undermines the fact that good effective teachers are, aren't born. They're, they're made and laboriously, like book by book, class by class, you know, seminar by workshop by seminar, reflection, uh, you know, by syllabus and on and on, like it's ongoing labor. And I do think that that award system can kind of undermine our, our energy and willingness to just keep like plugging away day after ever loving day. Like that's the, the real work of teaching and learning is little bit by little bit, you know, just like our, our learners slowly accumulate the skills and knowledge they need. 
we slowly accumulate the skills and knowledge we need as educators piece by piece, day by day. And it's it, it's not that it's unheard of, but it's rare that it's going to happen in one big leap forward or one like amazing lecture. Yeah. It's hard to glamorize in a Hollywood film and that's okay. And that's okay is what you're saying. Right. <laughs> wow. So I, I feel like we maybe, if you have a minute, we should talk about Abbott, Abbott elementary for a second. Then if like it, it does, it does seem like I've been trying to get Quinta Brunson on this podcast. So if she's out there listening, <laughs> Um, I, 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 it would be your most listened to episode. (laughs) She's, she's busy. It's cool. Um, but besides that, um, you know, what, as somebody that, you know, what, what is different about that and how does that, how is that more helpful? If it sounds like you're suggesting, I think what really strikes me and I, I, I'm just thinking out loud. I, I hadn't really reflected too much on it, except that I knew I loved the show and watched every episode avidly. Um, I think one, well, there's a couple big differences. You know, the the setting is really important and the, um, you know, centering of Black American experiences as teachers and students is, is really crucial. But I think even beyond that, the way it depicts teaching, just like I was talking about, as an ongoing learning process for teachers and that the experience that, you know, the senior teachers have gained is really, really valuable, but they're all learning all the time how to keep adapting and adjusting and helping their students learn. And I think it's also really effective at showing effective teaching and all the different ways it can look. It doesn't look the same from classroom to classroom. They are the, the, the pieces they show, you know, in between some of the other plot points, the pieces they show about teaching, each of the main characters does it differently, but starts from a place of care and concern for, for student learning and wanting to facilitate um, students increase increasing skills and abilities and it's not it's it, it's like the opposite of glamorous um, but rewarding you know very rewarding the all the the teacher characters find the work very meaningful and 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 rewarding if criminally underpaid. <laughs> Also, a difficult administrator to work with. That's very realistic. <laughs> right. From what I hear, that's that's not my situation, of course. Of course. Of course. <laughs> it, it, it can happen, I've heard. It can happen. One other thing I'm very curious about is you, you referenced that your views have changed even since you've published Geeky Pedagogy because this pandemic trauma happened to all of us. Um, can you, is there a highlight of something new that you've, come out of this period kind of thinking? Yeah. Well, a couple of things. I, my awareness of some inclusive teaching practices has definitely increased since I wrote the book. And that's just me continuing to build my knowledge. And also then some of that was put into major focus during the, the pivot 
um, really paying closer attention to students' unique and individual life context. That's something we all, I mean, many people started to, to talk more about during the pandemic. Online teaching was something I'd never done before. And during the emergency pivot, I learned a lot about that and how effective it can be. Um, so that's, that's something I don't address in geeky pedagogy that now I would definitely consider more. Um, and just looking at some of my own assumptions and biases as well, just to give an example, um, in working on Picture Professor, one of the chapters is, is called uh, How to Win the First Day um, as, a, as a Blind blind professor, and it's co-authored by three instructors who are visually impaired. And work just working with them on other writing and um, talking with them increased my awareness about the ways I'd use that term blind. The scholarship of teaching and learning sometimes uses that term in an unnecessarily ableist and derogatory way when other words would work just as well. Um, so th- those, are, those are a couple things off the top of my head. To wrap up, let's go back to that scene from the Nicolas Cage movie that started the episode. He reaches his courtyard with toil and with dread. The child in his arms finds he motionless, dead. I asked the professor to say a little bit more about why that image of a class bursting into applause at the end of a lecture is such a problem for her. Yeah, that, and that because learning's really hard and it's not going to always feel, you're not always going to want to stand up and cheer when you're learning because uh, it's hard and it takes a long time and it takes struggle and setbacks and feedback. And no, nobody, when they get constructive feedback and we academics, I mean, we live for feedback. That's our love language. Like here's things you can do to improve. We love it, but we don't want to stand up and applaud when we are looking at that that list of things, oh, here's some things I need to address in the next in the next uh, draft, we're not like, yay, applause. <laughs> no, there's no standing ovation. It's it's work. So yeah, it's that that is one Hollywood moment that drives me crazy. Oh, and the other one is like even like every Law and Order episode when they go to the professor's office, if it happens on a college campus, it's always like a massive private room full of antiques and leather furniture. I mean, there's a few professors who have offices like that, but most of us do not. I get you. No, I've definitely seen these. That's yes, funny. Law and Order call me for a consult. I can give you a more realistic view. <laughs> You're available to Hollywood yes. everywhere. Oh, great. All right. Well, thank you um, so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Before we close this episode, I want to share a message from a listener. Tara Baumgarten from Sora Schools wrote me on Twitter and said she's been listening to the series we just finished on student disengagement and had this to share. She said, as I've been listening, I've also been reading the book Stolen Focus, which talks about the different causes of our waning attention. The thing I keep coming back to is the term engagement. In the book, it's defined as minutes and seconds of eyeballs on the product in things like Facebook and Google. This would make sense for colleges and universities to use as a metric if we believed in the, quote, transmission method of learning. But we know you have to think it through. 
Calling it disengagement leads people to solutions like one of the Texas State professors suggested. Using stand-up, using people's names, attendance checking. She goes on a little bit more and says, what if we're thinking about engagement wrong? Kind of like the way these Hollywood movies do it. She finished her message. Let's say we actually solved the disengagement crisis. Now everyone is engaged and paying attention during lectures, but are they learning? It might feel better for the professors to have the eyeballs, but I'm not sure this type of engagement should be our North Star. Hey, thanks for listening and sharing that, Tara. It was so interesting to actually get that message on the very same day I interviewed Jessamine Newhouse for this episode. It seems lots of folks these days are thinking through what teaching is really about. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week we bring you stories meant to spark your curiosity about learning. I am always interested in feedback and discussion about the points in these podcasts, so please feel free to share with me by email at jeff at edsurge.com or Twitter at jryoung. We hope you will follow the EdSurge podcast wherever you listen and sign up for our weekly EdSurge podcast newsletter. Just go to edsurge.com to dive deeper into the topics that we explore. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young and music this episode by Rowan Jane. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.